Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Uh, Our family, several years ago, went on a beach vacation, and we thought, you know, it was was spring break here, so it was kind of, uh, you know, how it is in spring break in Minnesota. There's still like two feet of snow on the ground, so we thought maybe it it was my daughter, oldest daughter's senior year, and we thought, let's spring for a trip to Florida. Let's go to Miami. Let's enjoy the warmth and the sunshine. So, of course, we got to Miami, and it was rainy and drizzly all week, and we thought, well, we're from Minnesota, so it's still like 60 degrees warmer here than when it was left. I mean, every all the locals were in their winter jackets and parkas, and we were on the beach, you know, sunscreen and stuff, even though it's cloudy and drizzly and rainy. But we got out to the beach, and there were these, these two flags flying every 100 feet or so. I have, actually have a picture of it. Um, and they were red and purple flags. Uh, this isn't a good representation because there's more sun than you could see on the day that they were, we were there. On these red and purple flags. And at first you're like, oh, cool, you know, it's decorations and, or there's a parade or something. And then you read the little handy guide right next to it. And it says that, you know, green means go for it. Yellow means pay attention, be careful. Red means... Bad news, stay clear, probably shouldn't get in the water. There's a double red flag, which means like if you get in the water, you will die a painful and agonizing death. And then there's a purple flag, which was kind of new to me, and that's dangerous marine life. And I don't, didn't know if that was sharks or deadly jellyfish or what, but these flags were flying all week. And so just imagine this sad picture I'm going to paint for you of the Doherty family sitting on the beach in the wind and the drizzle, about 60 degrees, and you can't even get in the water on our beach vacation. There were less noises of sympathy than I expected there. (laughs) Aw. Like I said, it was still about 60 degrees warmer than Minnesota. Now, red flags are a metaphor. We use them, common vernacular. Somebody does something, we're like, oh, that's a, that's a red flag. It signals something about their character. If this person does blank, so to speak, we would, we would say, oh, steer clear, because, you know, that, that could indicate something about who they are, particularly dates, things like that. If you're going on dates, I know a lot of you probably going on all kinds of dates right now, but that's, that's a way to get to know somebody, and if they do certain things, you're like, eh, that says something about who they are, and we need to watch out. So, so for example, I know what I'm about to tell you are, are fairly common, but these are some of my red flags uh, in, just in society, not dating so much, but just in society. Um, if someone says something mean and the other person gets upset or offended or mad, and then the person who said something mean says what? Can't take a little joke? Red flag, right? Red flag. That's a, that's a big one. Uh, if you're at one of those fast casual restaurants where you have to clean the table yourself and you're with some people and you all get up to leave and they've left their junk on the table, their mess on the table, and you're like, uh, what about your stuff? And they say, that's okay. They pay someone here to do it. Red flag. That's for me, it's a red flag. So if you ever go out to lunch with me, just know I'm going to be judging your character. This is a new one, and, and uh, having flown a little bit recently, this is kind of a new one for me, but when the plane lands and taxis to the gate, and as soon as the fastened seatbelt sign is off, people jump out of their seats and they rush to the front of the plane. Have you seen this? That's a total red flag. When people do that, I'm like, I don't like you, I don't like you, I don't like you, I don't like you. <laughs> what is going on? It's a new thing. It's a red flag. 
a little judgmental, I suppose. But we think about red flags in terms of other people's behavior. We, we look at them, they do something, that's a red flag that signals something to us about their character. But what we're going to be talking about in this new series is we're going to be talking about red flags in our own hearts, in our own lives. The things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we think that are indications that something is going on inside here that maybe shouldn't be going on. So we're going to talk about four internal red flags in this series. I'm going to talk about one each week. I'm going to talk about one. Presley will talk about one next week. And by the way, evidently when Presley's preaching, the room is packed. Because that happened last week. There's tons of people here. So I guess there's just going to be a thousand people here next Sunday because Presley will be talking about a red flag and then Steve and then I'm going to come back in and uh, finish up the series. Four internal red flags. And so we're just going to jump into the first one for us. The first one for us, it goes something like this. If they would just fill in the blank, then we could get along. If they would just, whatever it is, then we could get along. I just need them to behave differently and I could like them. Now I know this is going to be shocking. This is probably a thought you've never had before, but people can be difficult. I know. You might want to write that one down. People can be difficult. And it's, it's an unsurprising reality that we're constantly surprised by. We're constantly like, they, that person did something difficult and I'm annoyed and it's like constantly shocking. That's our daily lives is that people can be difficult and we're surprised by it. Daryl uh, here in the back, he didn't know he's going to be a sermon illustration, so I think he just slunk, slunk down lower in his seat. <laughs> but Daryl pulls double duty. Not only is he our tech guy that gets here early, he gets here like at 7 a.m. on Sunday mornings to make sure everything's going smooth, doing all that stuff. But Daryl also... Uh, manages our community garden, which is back there in the back. Have you seen that? That place is amazing. Daryl does all the managing of it. Yes. That's good job, Daryl. And the garden has been incredible. Uh, you're really going to want to clap for him when I tell you a couple stories about the community garden. The garden has been incredible because our church parking lot, there's people going in and out all the time. There's, there's tons of people back there from all over Woodbury and people who, are, who have migrated from all over the world that that was part of their lifestyle. They, they, they're longing to do that and they're just back there all the time. It's just been an awesome thing. Really, really cool way to positively use our land to make a difference. Land that was just otherwise just sitting there and that somebody had to mow. So most of the gardeners are awesome. There are a few bad apples. Pun intended. I thought that would be a pun, but it's not really. There are a few, <laughs> there are a few bad apples. Let me tell you just two stories that I know about. And if you want to get the real uh, down low gossip, you can talk to Daryl. But two stories that I've heard about one gardener, I guess, I understand. I don't know any names. I don't know any details. We don't, you know, we don't keep a logbook of this. But one gardener liked what somebody else was growing. And so they just harvested it and took it. They just took somebody else's. These are all plots that are very distinct. It's not just like a buffet and you just go in and garden whatever you want, take whatever you want. Everybody has their own assigned space. And this gardener was like, I want those and I'm going to take them. I don't even know what it was, you know, onions or something like that. That's pretty wild. I mean, you wouldn't think that people who enjoy cultivating produce from the earth are also the same kind of people that like to steal. I, I wouldn't think that those two things would go together, but it happens. Now, there's something like 100 gardeners back there. I think there's 50-some plots or something like that. There's, he's given me a signal. Three plots, 30 plots. 53 plots. 
And there's, you know, multiple people sometimes doing the same plot. So there's a lot of people back there, 53 plots. But you kind of have to sign up early because it's this really popular thing to go back there and garden. And it's baffling to me because I want to be able to go to the store and get my produce. I don't want to have to work to do it. But people love it. They love it. So at the beginning of gardening season, someone who hadn't signed up early enough came and said, hey, can I also get a plot? And Daryl, very graciously, he's like, I'm so sorry. We're out of plots. We don't have any. And they were like, no, I really need one. And well, what's the situation? Oh, I'm so sorry. We're, but next year, you can be first of the list. You can get a plot next year. And so we thought, okay, that took care of it. It did not take care of it. This person came, I suppose, under the dark of night dug up somebody else's plot and planted their own garden. That is unbelievable to me. Who are these people? So I have decided I'm going to pitch a show to Bravo called The Real Gardeners of Woodbury. It's going to be <laughs> incredible. We're going to get so much attention for this. It's awesome. It's no surprise, right? It's no surprise that people can be difficult. Um, and let me, let me say something that might be even a little bit more challenging. It's, it's actually no surprise that church people can be difficult. E even Christians can be difficult. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I might get an amen. Church people can be difficult. Maybe, maybe even people we go to church with. <laughs> maybe someone in the room comes to mind for you. Maybe you're sitting next to them. Listen. Maybe you come to mind for someone else. Oh, now I've crossed the line, I can tell. But I'm serious, like that's, that's a challenging thing. It's such a challenging thing that we, people are difficult, church people are difficult. And honestly, when people are difficult, and especially church people, the easiest, most natural, normal thing to do is just to keep everything at a distance and keep relationships shallow. We want to check off the church box. We want to do a couple songs. We want to be able to pray here and there. We want that, maybe listen to a sermon, but we want to keep relationships at a distance because we don't want to get into something that might be difficult and then we have to sort out later. Or we're going to be frustrated or we're going to be angry or we're going to be mad about something that's going on. So Sometimes we preemptively keep our distance. Not that you're in a relationship and you extract yourself out of it because this person has gone bonkers and you don't know what to do, but you don't allow yourself to get connected to people because you don't want to have to deal with that. We preemptively keep our distance. I've had more than one person tell me they don't like churches our size. And when I mean our size, I, I, we're not really small anymore. We're really, things have really been growing. Uh, but at some points in our history, we've been small enough where you kind of know everybody that's at church. And they say, I don't like that. I want to go to church. I kind of just want to do my thing. And then I want to leave. And, and they wouldn't maybe word it this way, but they want to be anonymous. They don't want to feel hassled by Logan to say, hey, are you interested in being a children's ministry volunteer? They don't want to be hassled by Chelsea to say, do you want to be a greeter? They don't want to have to interact with people and so this is too small for them because people are going to recognize them it's like the opposite of cheers you want to go to a place where nobody knows your name and there are people who have said that and and again now we're kind of in this interesting era of growth and there's some people you're looking in the room and you're like I don't know who that is I don't know who they are and we're gonna we're gonna take care of that actually uh, next uh, next month we're gonna have a name forgiveness Sunday where it is okay to admit that you don't know who somebody is and we're going to wear name tags and all that. We'll talk to about, about more, uh, more about that soon. 
But what we are saying when we say that, and I know it's none of you because you're in the room this morning, but what we are saying is that we want church, we want singing, maybe some preaching, we want some of that stuff, but we want that without the problems that come with people. And essentially what we're saying is that we want church without church. That's what that is, church without church. So let's go back to our red flag. If they would just X, Y, or Z, then we could get along. If they would just do whatever, then we could get along. The hardest part about this red flag is that it is absolutely true. If everyone else around us would just constantly meet our expectations, we could get along. If they would do what we needed them to do without us having to ask, we could get along. If everyone would just we could get along if people would think like you, act like you, be like you, never mistreat you, always let you control the remote, always let you choose the restaurant, never forget your birthday, never chew with their mouth open, always signal when they change lanes, handle a joke, clean up after themselves, then we could get along. And what we're saying when we say that is if you were different, I might like you. That's what we're telling people. If you were different, I might like you, which is true, right? But this is a red flag that something in our heart might need a little bit of work. Now let me pause for just a second and let's say a quick word about healthy boundaries. Because when we talk about topics like this, there are some of you in the room whose minds immediately go to the most difficult, the most problematic, the most toxic person in your life, and you say, even them, I have to interact with them, I have to have a relationship with them, they're harmful, they're dangerous, potentially abusive. So we need to say uh, a quick word about healthy boundaries, because what we're talking about here is a broad scriptural principle, right? Of course, listen, of course, there are exceptions. There are people in your life that you need to create some distance from, whether that is abuse or whether that is toxicity, of course. I was thinking about this this week. You could do a whole sermon series on the great boundaries that Jesus had. Read the Gospels and note all the time he tells people, no, I'm not doing that. Jesus, if you would just give us a sign, we would believe that you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, nope, I am not doing that. Jesus, a, couple, a guy called out in a crowd, tell my brother to split our inheritance with me. And Jesus said, nope, I'm not doing that. Often, when there were big crowds, Jesus would gather up his disciples and he would say, guys, let's get out of here. Let's go. You can read the Gospels, and there's so many times where Jesus leaves the crowds. Let's get in the boat. They can't follow us. Only I can walk on water, so we're good. Let's get out of here. And then Jesus would get in the boat and take a nap. Jesus seemed to have healthy boundaries. And so don't hear me say, oh, I've got to open myself up to toxicity and abuse. It, it requires a tremendous amount of wisdom to tease out where these lines and these boundaries are, but ask for wise counsel in your life. But don't hear me say that I've got to allow myself to be abused in order to deal with this red flag that we're talking about. All right, that's good. And, and by the way, I think the way we, we'd rephrase what I'm talking about when it came to boundaries, and this could be helpful for some people, it's not, if you were different, I might like you. It's because I like you. <laughs> it's because I, like God might tell us, because I love you, you need to make some changes in your life. Because I care about you, 
you should be different. And, and that's a different posture, and maybe that's a difficult way to say that or understand that, but I hope that we understand uh, what I'm trying to, trying to get at. Our red flag today comes from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, or chapter 12, not verse 1. We love verse 1 and 2. It's an incredible chapter. Gleb read it, and it's just, it's this beautiful, challenging, difficult passage of Scripture. It's inspiring, and it's also, um, you know, it gives you feelings of guilt, too. But the very beginning of the chapter, he says in verses 1 and 2, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, meaning God didn't mistreat you because of the way that you behaved, in view of that, offer your body your lives, your minds, your thoughts, your, your resources. Offer these things to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. We love this verse. Some people have it on tattoos. They have it on their wall. By the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We love that, but the problem is, is we stop there. That beautiful passage right there he then immediately launches into relationships and he talks about how we have to be devoted to one another, that we're one body with different gifts, how we have to honor one another, how we have to live in harmony with one another. This isn't isolated from that. And it's a beautiful ethic. It's a new way of being human. And it's unlike anything else. It's being transformed and not conformed to the world. It's very wonderful. But the, the, the text wraps up that section with an intriguing verse that I just think is so thoughtful and so nuanced that we want to spend some time talking about it. And it's Romans chapter 12, verse 18, where he writes this. If it is possible, if it is possible, <laughs> some of you are like, it's not. <laughs> as far as it depends on you, some of you are like, it doesn't. <laughs> Live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. On the surface... This verse is obvious, right? Get along with folks, right? Get along. Don't jump out of your seat as soon as the plane lands and rush to the front. Get along. Bust your table at Chipotle. Get along with people. Just be a nice person. Right on the surface, we're like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. We can, we can try as much as it lies with you. The default setting in our relationships is to put the burden of responsibility on the other person for this connection that we have. And Paul's just flipping that around, and he's saying, no, generally speaking, the default needs to be on you. It needs to be on you. Now, this is really good news, and let me just say this. For people pleasers, like certain people in the room, this is really good news, because there, it reminds me that there are times where it does not depend on me, where there is nothing I can do. Despite my best efforts, they don't like the charming, wonderful personality that is Patrick Doherty. There are times where it does not depend on me. That's good. That is very good. But, but there are probably more times where it does. And we let ourselves off the hook pretty early. Let's talk about this. We're just going to break this down into, into, into two parts. And, and they're, they're fairly basic, but I think that they're important to remind ourselves of in terms of the challenge of, of what it means to be a human and operate not only in the world but within a community like this. Back when I was running youth group, actually by the way can I just say this little commercial pause, Presley is literally doing an incredible job and what he has done in one year is in some ways better than what I was able to accomplish in 13. And I'm not just saying that. He has done an amazing job interacting with the, uh, the teenagers, the high schoolers, junior high and high schoolers uh, in the room. And it's been really good. And if your kid is not involved with the youth group, they are missing out because it's been a tremendously positive experience. 
Uh, but back when I was running youth group and things were a little more organized, I, uh, <laughs> just kidding. I just can't help myself. So we take this group of uh, kids. <laughs> my wife is like, it was not organized. <laughs> that is so true. It is so true. Anyway, we take this group of kids to um, Valley Fair, this big amusement park. And it's always, you know, that's the, the event everybody wants to come to. In fact, Presley just did that and had 50 plus kids show up, right? Something, something crazy. So anyway, I drive the kids there. I kind of organize the kids. I give them some ground rules. And of course, I ride the rides, right? I mean, that's part of the, that's the, the fringe benefits of this. And so I'm riding this ride called the Wild Thing. You know this ride? Just kind of does this like a giant skateboard, shoots you up. I don't know. It feels like a million feet in the sky. And then at the top, it shakes you like this. And then it drops you down again. Like, so it's terrifying. That's the, the whole point of the amusement park ride. One of the youth group kids' friends happened to be with us. He joined us that day. And uh, I was probably by myself, because nobody wants to ride with the old guy, probably by myself towards the front of the ride. And this youth group kid and his friend were probably 10, 15 rows behind me uh, in, in this ride. And while we were on the ride, this kid, the friend, saw something drop off the ride and fall to the ground. That's pretty much all he saw. And he thought, I wonder if something fell out of somebody's pocket. So he came up to me after the ride and he said, hey, uh, Mr. Doherty, I don't think he called me that, but whatever, in my fantasy, he might as well. He said, hey, Mr. Doherty, uh, while we were on the ride, I saw something fall and uh, I think it might have fallen out of somebody's pocket. And I thought, well, let's go look. And so we walk over to this place where it would have fallen. And sure enough, there was a key on the ground that had fallen out of somebody's pocket. Guess whose key it was? <laughs> mine. And guess whose pocket it had fallen out of? Also mine. It was the key that I was going to get all the kids back home with. I would have had no clue. I would have been deep in the park on some giant swing, and I, I would have gotten to the end of the day, and I would have been like, let's go home after a long, tiring day of being at the amusement park, and I would have reached into my pocket, and there would have been nothing there. Think about this. No joke. The key fell out of my pocket, unbeknownst to me. And he didn't know it was my key. He just happened to be with us. He just happened to see something fall. He just happened to mention it to me because I was the adult that he was with. And it just happened to be the key from my pocket. Ergo, God exists. <laughs> I rest my case, right? No, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. Oh, I do believe God exists. <laughs> but I, I say that. I say that because I don't think we have a sense of how much we need other people just to get through life. We like to think we could do it our own, but the people that do it on their own are like Ted Kaczynski. And if you don't know who that is, you should look him up. And he did not do well on his own. We require relationships to get along, to get through life. We need that. So this entire concept that we're talking about with these red flags is built on the expectation that we value community. In fact, that we value spiritual community. That used to be self-evident, and it is not anymore. Because you can find community in dozens of places. You do not need the church to have relationships. It, they're all over. They're, you have your kids' soccer uh, parents. You have your coworkers that go, after, go out after work. You have your spin class. And honestly, can I say this? This doesn't sound like a commercial for church. But can I say there can be easier places to find community than church? Easier. 
not necessarily more accepting, but easier. It is potentially easier to find relationships on your softball team than it is at church. It can be a challenge, and I, I think we have to acknowledge that. The softball team is fun. You're organized around a common interest. And some people feel like, well, I've got all the friends in the world. I don't need any more friends. I'm full on community. If that's true, just know. If you're sitting here in the room saying, I don't need community, much less spiritual community, just know that you're the exception to the rule, okay? Most people struggle. It's like, it's fact. It's like if you're saying, I have all the friends I need. What we're hearing is the same as if somebody was like, oh, my wallet, it's so annoying because it's just so full of cash all the time. Or, man, my Maserati just drives too fast. It's just so hard. I just struggle. Come on. We're rolling our eyes at people who say, I don't need more friends. Because for most people, in fact, the Surgeon General used the language of epidemic to talk about loneliness in the United States. This is just in May. May of 2023, he put out a publication saying our epidemic of loneliness. You don't use the word epidemic in a post-COVID world lightly. Because he was talking about in this report, he, he literally says there's a 29% increased risk of heart disease within, with, because of loneliness. There's a 32% increased risk of stroke. There's a 50% increased risk of developing dementia when a person's lonely. And get this, there is a 60% increased risk of premature death. So all I'm saying is church is the healthiest, most safe place to be. But what he's talking about is very true. Loneliness just diminishes the human spirit to the point that people, they, they, they lose their vitality, they lose their health and, and die. So we don't just need community as, as he's proposing. We need spiritual community. And that's why when I read this op-ed out of the Washington Post uh, a couple weeks ago, I noted it because I thought it was so good. It's Christine Emba, and I just want to read you a section of what she writes about in terms of people leaving spiritual community. This is what she says. She says, here's, here's what you lose when you lose church. This is the Washington Post. I know it's the opinion section, but still, it's the, they published this in the Washington Post. She writes this, we still want relationships and we want transcendence. We want connection and we want God. Hmm, sounds very suspiciously similar to what God said. You need to love God and you need to love your neighbor. Very similar, interesting. We still want that even when we leave church. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Some of us are turning to, low, are turning to convenient, low-commitment substitutes for faith and fellowship. And then she writes things like astrology or the easy spiritualism of self-care or yoga because people are longing for some spiritual connection. They're not leaving spiritual, spirituality. And that's why a lot of people say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Or being online or playing games. Few of these activities are as geared toward building deep relationships and communal support as the religious traditions that we are leaving behind. Actively participating in a congregation means embedding oneself in the community. This involves you in the lives of others and the other way around. Their joys and sadnesses and connections and expectations. By leaving religion, we're shrugging off the ties that bind, not just loosening them temporarily, which is freeing until it's not. You probably don't think you need spiritual community until you do. And when you do, and you haven't cultivated it, it's incredibly lonely. It's incredibly lonely. Non-religious communities are great. I'm not telling you don't join a softball team or a spin class or whatever. They're great, but they're not a substitute for spiritual community. They're not interchangeable. 
right? They're not Lego blocks that you could just put in and put out. Acts chapter two, verse 42, it's a familiar passage. We're familiar with it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. It's just unlikely that the parents on your soccer team are devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine and reminding themselves of what it means to live as a new human in the world and a redeemed human and redeeming the world around us. I can't imagine that that after work group is devoted, uh, uh, devoted to the communal remembrance of Jesus' death, one of the things that we partook in today. I doubt most softball teams, though maybe some, are devoted to prayer, but I doubt it. I know in the, in the few athletic endeavors that I engage in, when I'm there and people know my vocation as a minister, they'll often come to me, pull me aside. They're not going to the whole group. They're coming to me and they're saying, I've got this struggle in my marriage and I need advice and I need support. Why are they coming to me? Because they think I know something, maybe that I don't, but they're coming to me because they're looking for something spiritual that they're not able to get on the other guys on the basketball team. So important that we understand spiritual community is one of those things that cannot be substituted anywhere else. It's wild. Um, To be the kind of person that Jesus modeled in the world, this is a green flag, to be that kind of person means being a part of the kind of community that Jesus built. Right? Pretty straightforward, pretty simple, but we still, we struggle with those basic things. So if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, even Christians. Even Christians. But secondly, let's talk about difficult people, because all people can be difficult. Let's, let's really dive in. For a period of time in my life, I had what is unarguably, inarguably, the best job on the planet. I worked for a company called Sunshine Balloons and Flowers, and I delivered balloons and flowers all over Enid, Oklahoma. I literally drove around spreading light, spreading sunshine. Imagine, this place also sold fudge, so flowers and balloons aren't your thing. I also brought that. But just imagine, everywhere I go, everybody's happy to see me. Imagine, with somebody like my personality, people pleaser, extrovert, everywhere I go, faces light up because I'm bringing balloons, I'm bringing flowers, I'm bringing fudge. It was an amazing job, just going all over. I loved it until I got fired. But it was great (laughs) right up until that point. Technically, I didn't get fired. I got let go, but uh, I'll tell you that story some other time. But anyway, it was great. At one point in this job, they gave me an additional responsibility. This is a little bit bit of a surprise, but evidently people who order flowers and fudge and balloons online don't always pay their bill, so they needed someone to do bill collecting. So they thought, genius, Patrick's going out and delivering. He can just stop by some of the addresses where people haven't paid their bill, and he can knock on the door, and he can get them to collect a little bit of money. How do you think that went? (laughs) Patrick is used to going around every day. Here's your balloons. Here's your flowers. He's not used to going up on a door and saying, "Uh, I need $37 for a bouquet you ordered two months ago and you haven't paid. And I wasn't good at it. And you know how much money I collected in the course of doing this? This is no exaggeration to tell you I collected this much money. (laughs) I wasn't good at it. It was easy When I'm delivering balloons and sunshine and flowers and fudge, it was hard when I was trying to collect bills. I was great at delivering happiness. I was terrible at delivering bad news. And it's easy to be at peace with people when you're bringing balloons. And it's hard to be at peace with people when you're collecting bills. This is interesting to me. The scriptures don't tell us why Jesus selected the 12 people that he selected. 
Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 12 just says, Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray. He spent the night praying to God, and then he selected these guys. In verse 13, he says, when morning came, he called his disciples to him. He chose 12 of them who he designated his close group, his apostles, his 12. Verse 14, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, note that, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He spent all night praying, and then he picked these guys. These guys, deliberately picked these guys. These weren't the first 12 that came along. He calls Simon the Rock, changes his nickname to the Rock. He calls James and John, sons of thunder. They were the two that said, I don't like that guy. Jesus, can we call down lightning on them? Those were those two guys. Real fun personalities, as you can imagine. He selects a zealot, which is a political party that hates Rome. And he selects Matthew, who is a tax collector, who is working with Rome, complicit with Rome. And he gathers these 12 and he says, hey, uh, we're going to be a team now. Imagine the first meetup with those 12. They're all gathered in a circle and Jesus says, hey, guys, let's go around the room, introduce ourselves. Let's say some fun fact about each other. And Matthew's like, well, uh, I'm a tax collector and I've gotten rich off of scalping money off of uh, local people. And Simon the Zealot says, oh, I'm a zealot, and I like to murder tax collectors. Imagine that gathering of people. Jesus deliberately selected that group of people. Why in the world did he did that? do that? I, I think it's a little bit like an inspirational sports movie, and they can be any of them, but it's where the coach pulls together this ragtag team of misfit kids, and he shapes them into something. And the crucial point in any of those movies is that the very fact that they don't get along and they have to work through that is what makes them a great team. If we're always just bouncing from team to team because there's something there we don't like, something there we don't like, we're never going to be NBA champions. And that's exactly what the modern NBA is. And you didn't want to hear that. Who cares? But that's exactly what these guys do. I don't like that coach. I don't like that teammate. I don't like this. And they just go around and around and they never cultivate something because they're never, they're never going through difficulty to be shaped into something better. And I think Jesus picked difficult personalities because he knew that they would shape each other into something more. And they would be such a tight-knit community because of what they had gone through. What they had gone through. When we're too quick to hit the eject button at church, we lose the opportunity to grow, and so does the community around us. There's a deep togetherness on the other side of difficulty. It's hard. It's painful. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, iron sharpens iron. That doesn't sound like a fun process. That sounds like a battle. That sounds like metal clanking together. That's a difficult process. But, hey, that's how you become a better person. Avoiding differences is easy but debilitating. Working through differences is hard, but it's life-giving. If your highest goal is comfort, you will curate your life, life to avoid difficult people. If you're constantly avoiding difficult people, the likelihood is that you're probably not growing. You're probably not becoming a new and renewed person. So, as annoying as it is, we need to find people with whom we disagree. And some of you are thinking, oh, perfect, I joined the right church. <laughs> and I think that's exactly right. That as we work through the difficulties, as we work through the differences, the other side of that is something beautiful. But we will never experience that beauty if we're constantly looking for the exit ramp. 
So let me wrap this up by saying we're about to enter into small group season, which is where we try to gather everybody at church into small groups. Um, There's a lot of people who, that's not my thing. I'd rather be in this, and I'd rather hear you say something that's either funny or challenging, but I don't really want to be in a small, knit, tight-knit community. But I'm telling you, that's where the real life, the real joy, the real growth is, is being together in those places, even if somebody in that group bothers you, because you can be developed through that. You can be changed through that. You can be transformed through that. Avoiding that, and you'll just stay the same old person that you are. I'm going to say something that uh, I forgot to ask my mom if I could say this, but I'm sure she's going to be fine with it. But she told me and several people that being here at Woodbury is the first time in her, in her adult church life where she has felt fully accepted. This is, I, I grew up going to church. My mom grew up going to church. And she's telling me and others that this is the first time in her adult church life that she has felt fully accepted by a group of Christians. I say that to say the grass is green. You may be looking for greener grass, but I'm telling you, the grass is green. I've said this multiple times before, but I believe the Spirit of God is doing something in this community. And if we're distant and we're keeping things shallow, we don't get to be a part of that. And that's sad for you. And then we also miss out on what you bring to the table. So what we're encouraging people to do is to, well, let me say this. The challenge is to obligate yourself to some sort of community. Maybe it's coming to church every Sunday. Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's volunteering. But to obligate yourself to some sort of community that you would normally keep distant in order to be transformed by Jesus. We're going to close with a song. I'm going to invite the praise team to come back on upstage um, and sing together. It's one of the beauties of being in community is that we get to sing together. We're not singing solo, and it sounds so much better when we're all together. But my challenge, my prayer, is that we would obligate ourselves to community.